I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. The book of Philemon is about a runaway slave who is being sent back to his former master under the direction of the Apostle Paul. And it is intense when you get into the background of it and you read the actual one chapter letter. We call it the book of Philemon. It's just one chapter. It is intense and profound. And I think it says so much about brotherhood and grace and the attitude we should have in trying to resolve conflicts between people, between humans and other humans, um, especially Christians and other Christians. That's kind of the highlight, the focus of the letter. So we'll get into all that beautiful, beautiful letter. I'm excited to study it with you guys tonight. Hopefully I'll try and get through all of it tonight. I need to. I'm committed. I'm committed. So better or worse, we'll plow through. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to get into it, you're going to need to know the background, which is basically just three people. Three people that you need to know about in this letter. There's several people mentioned, but there's three that are the key players in the book of Philemon, and it's Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. So these three people are the key players. Paul the Apostle, you're well familiar with Paul the Apostle. He authored the letter. This isn't even a debate, even amongst like the more skeptical, critical scholars. Like They believe, yeah, this is definitely from Paul. Um, the same Paul that wrote Colossians, probably written around the same time as Colossians, uh, probably delivered at the same time as Colossians. And he wrote it from prison, it seems. And I'll share with you some scriptures. So Philemon 1, by which I don't mean chapter 1, I mean verse 1. Philemon 1, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So it's um, from Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, which he just means literally. I'm literally in prison for Jesus. And he, he writes his letter starting that. In verse 9, he says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Notice he, he doesn't focus on him being in prison under persecution, a prisoner because I'm persecuted, he, he, it's almost like he looks at the bright side of prison and says, a prisoner for Christ. And his perspective on suffering is what I want mine to be, right? I want that perspective. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So verse 13, it says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So again, he mentions he's in prison. And then finally, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. He's not the only one in prison. <laughs> so, um, so clearly Paul wrote this from prison, which helps us out because on the timeline of Paul the Apostle's life, this means it's between 55 AD and 61 AD because he was in prison three times and those are the time periods. Um, it seems, and I'm going to go with this theory, it seems that he wrote it from Rome. That he wrote Colossians from Rome and Philemon from Rome, which would put it between 60 and 61 AD. So that's the timeline of Paul the Apostles, 30 years after, after the time of Christ. So Paul's an old, old guy now. He's been doing ministry for a long time, even, even longer than me at this point. Which is, actually, it's 20 years, so <laughs> it's been a little while. Um, so that's the date. That's the first character, Paul. We all know Paul, magnificent apostles. Focus was to the Gentiles, but he had a heart for the Jews as well. And he wrote a bunch of your New Testament. In fact, he wrote more letters in your New Testament than anyone else. Although technically Luke wrote more of your New Testament than anyone else, as far as quantity of writing. Interesting trivia. You can use that for Jeopardy one day. Isn't it funny how the Jeopardy, the Bible columns are always really easy for us? I get none of the other columns, right? Like the Bible column, I'm like, that's easy, I know that one. 
everything else or like ancient, whatever, for 300. Yeah, never. Nope, no, don't get any of them. Okay, the second character we need to look at is Philemon. Philemon, not Philemon. That was, Philemon is something else entirely. That's, I think, what I thought it was when I was a teenager. Um, Philemon, he's also a Christian. He is the recipient of the letter. The letter is addressed to him. So Paul's writing to Philemon, and this guy knows Paul. In fact, Paul is the one who led him to Christ. That's what it seems from the letter. In verse 19, he says, you owe me even your own self. And when you read Paul enough, you realize like, yeah, he's saying that he led him to Christ. He gave him the gospel. So uh, Philemon met Paul, it seems, somewhere outside of Colossians, maybe Colossae, maybe in Ephesus he met him there. But he was led to Christ by Paul. Um, He actually partnered with Paul in some sense in ministry. In fact, in verse 1, he calls him his fellow worker. Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. So he doesn't use this term just casually. He uses this term of people who are laboring for the Lord. So he seems to have partnered in ministry with Paul. And of course, it's a personal letter. It's a letter to just Philemon. It's not a letter to... In fact, think of this. There's two letters he wrote in Colossians. There's the book of Colossians, or two Colossians, right? And then there's the letter to Philemon, this individual guy. So it's a personal letter, and it's not about church leadership, like First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's just to Philemon. Really unique in our New Testament. In fact, unique in the Bible. Okay, so Philemon, he's from Colossae. Uh, he, he actually runs a house church in Colossae. A, a, a house church meets in his home. Um, there were several fellowships, it seems, and one of them met there in his house. Okay, then we have Onesimus. And this guy is the third guy and the most interesting character. Onesimus, we gather as we put together all the puzzle pieces of this book, he's a runaway slave. His former master was Philemon. At some point, he ran away. It seems as though he stole from Philemon when he ran. Seems as though. I'm not sure of this, but that's what's implied as we read through the text itself. He, he, he met Paul. It seems he met him in Rome. Seems that he met Paul while he was in prison in Rome. And so during that two-year period of time, he's there meeting Paul. He gets saved under Paul's ministry, and he starts ministering to Paul. We read about him in another letter, Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Let me read this to you. He says, Tychicus, or Tychicus, will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you now for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He's one of the Colossians. So he's writing to the Colossians, and with the letter to the Colossians comes Onesimus, one of the Colossians. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So he's well acquainted with Paul and his ministry and everything that's going on. Um, um, Onesimus and Philemon have a relationship. Onesimus is the runaway slave. Philemon was his previous owner, master, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use there. He was the slave who ran away and had stolen from Philemon. And now he shows up with a letter from Paul to Philemon. It's Onesimus carrying it. And guess what it's about? Onesimus. This is intense. Like when you, when you realize that, that before he read the letter, Philemon would have seen his face. And he's like, hey, <laughs> I'm a Christian now. Paul says hi, you know, in the hands of a letter, and the guy reads it, and this is supposed to change what happens next. Because in their culture, there was severe Roman, in, in Roman law, there was severe punishments for runaway slaves. Severe punishments. Now, it's interesting that 
when Paul met Onesimus, he didn't send him back and he didn't report him to the authorities. He shared the gospel with him and he discipled him. And sometime later, he writes a letter and he sends a letter and Onesimus goes back. Now, under Roman law, you would expect him to report the authorities and turn away this runaway slave, turn in this runaway slave, right? And severe punishment would come and Paul would actually be rewarded for it under their laws. But there is a Jewish law in Deuteronomy that says if a runaway slave comes to you, you shall not send him back to his master, but you shall provide a place for him and you welcome him among you. And so it seems as though he is saying, this isn't just an old Jewish law, this is a moral truth. And so he observes that and he applies that to Onesimus. Interesting. Uh, nobody in the South was quoting this passage <laughs> during, during the conflicts that went, away, went, went uh, along during, during the uh, early, um, was the antebellum slavery. So, but this, this letter in a lot of ways, it's like, it's like the Bible's last word on slavery. And I think it's profound. And I think it's absolutely profound. So here's the letter from Paul to Philemon, delivered by Onesimus. And he comes back into possible peril, standing before Philemon. And here it begins in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. By the way, Archippus is greeted also in a letter to the Colossians. He's also greeted there as well. So another reason why they're together. These little undesigned coincidences. Um, now, before we get into more stuff, I want to talk for a minute about Paul's perspective on his him being a prisoner. In fact, he, he front loads this particular letter, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This seems a little bit odd um, to be like, hey, it's me, the prisoner. This is not something you boast about in any culture. Like you do, Nobody boasts about this, but Christianity is kind of weird like that. Like we boast that our Savior died on a cross for our sins, considered a terribly shameful death at the time, um, and he died on the cross for us. In fact, Christianity exalted the fact that Jesus went to the cross and used that as a model for how we ought to love one another. It was considered the most shameful death. In fact, ancient writers, as I've studied into some crucifixion stuff for upcoming debates and things, um, ancient writers, they wouldn't even like to use the term crucifixion because it was just offensive to them, the idea. So they would call it things like the extreme punishment. Like they didn't want to use the term crucifixion because it was just, you could just feel their resistance to even talk about it. Pretty crazy stuff. But Christianity, we glory in it. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. You know, and so Paul, he says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus because I'm going to exalt the hum- the humility and the humbleness that I'm having in Christ. That's the thing I'll, I'll exalt. Um, but there's more to it than that, I think. Paul had a godly perspective on his pain, and this is so, so, so important. And in fact, it's really important that you get a godly perspective on your pain before you're in a ton of pain. Because it's, it's kind of like the people who study martial arts, and then they get into a fight, and they immediately tap into their training. Well, you don't learn martial arts in the middle of a fight, right? Unless you're learning it the wrong way. <laughs> like, oh, ooh, that's, that's how you hit someone pretty good, huh? You know, that's not what... You, And so you don't want to learn about the issues of pain when you're in the middle of it. You want to try to learn as much as you can before you go in so you can be prepared. And Paul had a godly perspective on pain. Um, For one thing, our pain brings something. Our pain pain brings benefit. James 1 talks about this. Our pain brings character. Let let, uh, patience have its work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, so that we might suffer, yes, but that we might be producing lasting character. That sounds great until you're in pain and then you realize, no, you were supposed to really believe it. You know, when you heard it, that there's a character thing, an eternal character value for this temporary suffering. But 
it was more for Paul. Paul wasn't just imprisoned as like a general suffering of life situation. Like I got sick, I having, having a hard time, there was an earthquake. It's not like that. He was imprisoned because he was persecuted. And Paul had a perspective on persecution that was particularly profound. I just had to go with all the P's on that one because it just started. I couldn't stop. So Paul was being persecuted, and we, we can forget this sometimes. Um, but Paul highlights it. So let me read it in Philippians chapter 1. Look at his attitude towards persecution. It always shocks me. He says, I want you to know, this is Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He not only was encouraged by this, but he's writing a letter to the Philippians and he's going, hey, I know you guys are hurting because you know I'm in prison, but let me tell you some good news. Like, I mean, here's the guy in prison trying to cheer up the people who aren't about him being in prison. And he says, look at the fruit for the gospel. Everyone around here, they, they're like, it's like everyone in the prison knows I'm really just here because of Jesus. And because of this, the gospel is being proclaimed. And because I'm suffering, other Christians are more bold. And so Paul's rejoicing in these things. He's looking at his persecution and seeing the godly, like eternal fruit of it. And that really brings him present joy. And then he communicates it to the Philippians going, see, you should have joy too. You should rejoice in this too. So I think if you experience persecution, you should ask yourself, how can this be used to proclaim the name of Christ? And how can this be used to encourage those who might suffer like me? And that that may help you have that perspective. Basically, Paul's like, my job is to seek first God's kingdom. Well, let me see first his kingdom in the midst of my trials. And then he found joy and he found hope and he found positive things in the middle of stuff that, like, we're not talking like you have cable TV in your nice padded cell, you know, with room service. Like this is, this was prison. This was not, this was not, you know, a resort or whatever. Actually, prison is not that great, I don't think, even nowadays. But, <laughs> but it was probably a lot worse for Paul. So he sees benefits in his, in his persecution uh, for the gospel's sake. He also sees an identification with Christ. This is a whole other side of the coin for Paul. And in Philippians 1.29, he mentions it. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The way he words it, it's been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake. He sees Jesus as so glorious that suffering for him is an honor. I want to have that perspective. Jesus is so wonderful that if I were to suffer for him, it would be glorious. It would be honorable. It would be something that was being granted to me. Um, not self-suffering, not, not beating yourself or doing weird things like the pillar saints in the Middle Ages. You guys, it would tie their hands into a fist and let their fingernails grow through their hands as a way of proving how stupid they were and how much they misunderstand what suffering for Christ is versus self-abuse, which is not something that Jesus wants us to do. Um, at any rate, he mentions that. He also says in Philippians 2.17, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... I am glad and rejoice with you all. And because we've been doing the Jesus in the Old Testament series, you have like a visual of that poured out like a drink offering, you know, on the sacrificial offering of your faith. So our, notice how 
human lives being offered to God replaces the literal sacrifices of the Old Testament. That's how Paul is sort of interpreting and applying Old Testament sacrifices. He implies them like sim- symbolically into the Christian life. Um, he does this in other places too. Um, li- be a living sacrifice for God in Romans 12, things like that. Um, so if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is mind-blowing. Hey, if I'm going to die in service of you coming to Christ, let it be considered like an offering to God, a sweet-smelling aroma, and you should rejoice with me. I wonder how many of the people who read that letter thought, I don't know if I can do that, Paul. But this is where we come down to, will I have a true kingdom perspective on my life? And it's a good thing to learn. Again, in Philippians 3.8, you notice the book for this is Philippians. Philippians 3.8, it says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So he's not complaining about those things. He's like, nah, they're nothing. What I lost for Jesus was nothing. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's he saying here? This is different than before, right? He mentioned, just to kind of categorize these ideas, because it helps me anyways when I categorize them, Paul um, saw the fruit of his suffering, and it, it it was bringing people to Christ and encouraging people to share the gospel. He saw that it was glorious to just be identified with Christ in his, in his, uh, sufferings, because Jesus is so glorious. And then here he's saying, when I compare the suffering of what I lose to what I gain in Christ, this is nothing. The blood I lose for Jesus is nothing compared to the eternal life I gain in Christ. The life I lost in Christ is nothing compared to the glory that I've received from Christ. So by comparison, it's like a cost-reward um, analysis that he's doing. And he does it well, and he, and he comes out on the right side of it. This is, this is the kind of Christian optimism you can have. Because you know he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's like, do, do whatever you're going to do. You can't possibly do anything that takes away that. You can only take away this stuff here that is so small. Um, in Mark 10, 28, Jesus mentioned this too. In Mark 10, 28, it says, Peter began to say to him, to Jesus, See, we have left everything and have followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus, I think he's saying, I'll put you into a huge family of Christ. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. So what you lose is outweighed by what you gain. In a sense, when I do sacrifice for Jesus, I'm not really in the long term losing anything. In the short term, I am, but not in the long term. So, Paul begins the letter, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for all those reasons, and also because I think he wants to remind Philemon of his humility as he's now looking at Onesimus. Because Paul's going to connect himself to Onesimus in some really special ways. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Now, 
some skeptics uh, will doubt that Paul the Apostle actually exists. And they'll read this letter and they'll think it was like fabricated with all these random little details that interconnect between Colossians and Philippians and Acts and, and all these different texts. Um, and I just want you to know, like when you look at it, you're just reading a letter from a guy in the first century to another guy in the first century who had a bunch of mutual friends in common who's writing about real issues of the time. The only agenda seems to be Onesimus. This doesn't seem to be some later production from some church trying to push some theology or anything like that. Um, it's, so it's just sometimes those who want to challenge the text of scripture can't just read the text of scripture and just let it say what it says. <clears throat> okay, we get to verse three and it says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So this is love and faith are the two things. He, he usually starts with encouragement. You notice that? Paul often starts with very encouraging words. He says, you, you, you have love and you have faith. And then he specifically mentions not just love, but love towards the saints. And that's, I want to highlight this for a second because um, oftentimes we tend to think the measure of Christian faith and the measure of the church is how much we're loving the world. But that's not what scripture actually says. Now, I'm not here saying we don't love the world or something like that. I, I want to love people in the world. But scripture says that they'll know we're Christians by the love we have for one another. For one another, which is a Christian within, within Christianity, within the church. This is the test of our love. And yet some people in the name of love, they're, they're bitter at the church. And they're bitter at other believers and they criticize them. And they think they love the world, but they're using the world as their excuse for their bitterness towards other Christians. And so they, they can't help but criticize constantly the, the church and other Christians around them. And then they're, well, the world's better than this. The world's better than the church and this and that. And when I hear language like that, I, I realize this is just bitterness disguised as love. He says, I'm happy for your love for the saints. In fact, Galatians 6.10 takes it like a step further. It says, <clears throat> so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to non-believers. Oh no, that's not what it says at all. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're being told, like, I want to help people. I want to have charitable deeds and charitable acts of assisting others in need around me in my community. But I prioritize believers over non-believers. Why? The household of faith is a family. It's the same reason why you feed your children before you feed your neighbor's children. Because they're your family. So it's not like you don't help others, but <clears throat> it starts with the household of faith. So what we see is love and fellowship and this deep, wonderful relationship is supposed to exist between believer and believer, and our relationship with the world is outreach, and that's what verse 6 talks about. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. So I'm going to say something that's totally counter to a lot of what I've seen growing up, you know, and that is a lot of ministries, they focus on, number one, humanitarian aid is our number one way of reaching the world humanitarian aid to the world and occasionally we'll share the gospel i think the biblical form, i'm not saying that's bad it's not like it's bad to go help people in the world that's not the statement here but i think the biblical formula is humanitarian aid to the church to persecuted christians and poor believers and the needy among us that's our humanitarian aid focus and the world looks at that and that is outreach to the world 
they'll know we're Christians by our love for one another. And then we reach out to the world. Well, if I'm not going to reach out to the world with humanitarian aid, then what am I going to reach out with? Like, well, maybe the gospel. (laughs) Maybe we reach out with the gospel itself, and we don't have to do mountains of humanitarian aid for hours and millions of dollars and then speak the gospel for 30 seconds and hope that something lands. Um, In some cases, we're just too timid with the gospel, and we're watching our Christian brothers and sisters struggle and we're raising funds to do humanitarian outreach. Is it really outreach? I've been on these events, and I'm like, I've had debates with other pastors. Like, how is this going to be outreach? We're going to do this. This is, this is for non-believers. But how are we going to? And they were like, well, Mike, you know, it's, it's not about that. I'm not part of that group anymore, so <laughs> for that reason. I um, still love the people in it, but I just don't want to spend my time on it, to be honest. Yeah, I see the widows being taken care of in the New Testament. They were widows in the church. The poor being taken care of, they were poor in the church. The money being gathered to be, to be sent you know, into other towns, they were for persecuted Christians in other towns. It was constantly for believers, right? And some people think the church is supposed to take care of all of the poor of the world, like, like, like it's a political issue. That's not what I see in scripture, but I do see the church taking care of the poor within the church when those poor people are walking with the Lord and they're not just abusing, because there's always people knocking on our door. You're a church, right? Can you pay my rent? We get that every week, several calls a week. We get people ask, thinking the church is made of money. And we're like, no, can you pay our rent? <laughs> um, then they tell us we're not Christians and call us names and cuss at us and hang up. This is like every few days <laughs> in the office. It just, and every church, this is what happens. People see the church and they see. It's funny, is they, some people look at the church and they think the church is just about money. The truth is they're looking at the church and they're just about money. And they're actually just thinking, how do I get something from you? Um, But most people aren't like that, so we move on. So verse 7, it says, um, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is, again, he's he's running a house church, as we read about in verse 1. There's a church that meets in his house. And the saints, their hearts have been refreshed with him. He, He is ministered to the saints. How? We don't know all the details. We just know he's ministered to them. Certainly at a house church, did he teach? Did he have some other roles or responsibilities? We don't know. Um, this was an intimate and personal thing. The refreshing of the saints' hearts wasn't because they had a giant stadium gathering, but it was because they had a family gathering in a church. That's exciting to me. Um, whenever we have like party events, I'm always like wanting them to be smaller. Not because I, want, I don't want as many people there, but because I want to actually connect with the people that are there. And it's hard to do that in large, massive gatherings. And so if you have a big church, you kind of need the church within the church within the church to be like, have this like cluster of believers you can connect with and you can touch base with. And you don't want to walk in and walk out and not know anybody. Like you're, you're attending a church, but you're not being the church then, right? <clears throat> so their hearts are refreshed and he's encouraged by that. And here's something interesting. Paul the Apostle thoroughly encourages Philemon and he has no concern about puffing him up or making him arrogant. You notice that? He's like, oh, I'm so encouraged. Your faith and your love and your ministry to the saints and you've encouraged their hearts and oh, my brother. Oh, it's so great. But don't get puffed up. Like he doesn't even, he doesn't even warn him. I thought you had to warn people. You know, he doesn't warn him because, because he's not puffed up. He's just encouraging. He's building him up. This is something good, I think. Um, encouragement is good. Um, don't make it so people have to overhear you talking about them to hear you saying something good about them. It's okay to just encourage people, to just bless them, 
you know, and be like, hey, I just want you to know I see this gift in you, and I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think it blesses other people. And it's not a wind-up so you can now criticize. But, right, because sometimes we don't think it's something nice to say until we've decided to say something not nice. And then we're saying the nice thing just as the wind-up. You know, it's like jab, punch. It's like that's the jab, here comes the punch. Um, and, I mean, there can be times for that, absolutely. But there's a time for just encouraging and uplifting and building each other up. And if you read, like, Paul's letters, you read the New Testament, um, there isn't a fear of making people arrogant by telling them kind things about themselves. And here's my thought. Why not just encourage people? And if you think they're getting arrogant, you can do this little trick. You go, I think you're getting arrogant. And just tell them, right? Like, if we're going to be open, and then because you are so encouraging and because you are honest and, and kind there's going to be a, like a bridge for you to speak into their life a little bit more. And um, so it's not one or the other, but it's just kind of this openness that's there. I think that's, that's pretty cool for him to do that. Good encouragement for me. I used to be part of a ministry where I once overheard the leader of the ministry. It wasn't at Hosanna, but um, he said um, he made a point to never say thank you to anybody in the ministry he was serving with because he didn't want to feel like he was giving them credit. And I overheard him say this with somebody else. And you could tell he felt really good about it. And I, and I never forgot it because I just thought to myself, that's definitely not the way to do things, you know? <laughs> I think he was so worried he'd puff us up that he was starving us of the just good encouragement that would have come our way. Now, he was doing it for good motives, but he was just off on how to achieve those things. Uh, and I think that scripture would correct us if we'll just pay attention to these little things. Like, look how encouraging Paul is. So, verse 8, he says, um, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. He mentions again that he's a prisoner. Um, this, is, this is where he gets to the request. So far, he's greeted him, he's encouraged him, and now he's like, and now I have a request. Right? And, and in a sense, he's using that encouragement as like the platform for the request. Hey man, you're, you're a leader in the church. You're blessing the saints. You love and faith. And, and now here's my request. But I think, and by the way, the request, if you didn't know it, it's about Onesimus. It's about the guy holding the letter, bringing it to Philemon. Um, but these two verses illustrate something really deep and insightful about Paul and his old age. The implication is that Paul, as a younger younger minister, apostle, he would have just said, hey, do this. It's what's right. And that might not have been wrong. But now he says, but being the old man that I am, I have some old man words for you. You know, and he, and he instead is going to appeal to him for love's sake. And I think this is really profound. He chooses to appeal because obedience, simply a command, do this with Onesimus, that could be perfectly fine. Nothing would be wrong with that. But Paul doesn't just want him to obey. He wants him to obey with an understanding of the love that Christ has called us to perform. He's calling him to a Christian standard, not just to Christian obedience. You know, like a Christian, Christian character, I should say that. He's calling him to Christian character, not just Christian obedience. And that's where we can learn a lot from this letter. See, obedience is good, but it can be shallow and it can be short of true character. It's where you're robotically obedient because you know you're supposed to do it instead of from the inside out, you're following the Lord. God wants us to get it. He wants us to get that, that we should be loving, right? Let all that you do be done in love. 
Scripture says that we should be actually walking in love. And this is the kind of thing where people will just tune it out at this point, right? Like, okay, so it's a love sermon. Let all that you do be done in the yada, 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 yada. Yes, well, maybe when you're old, you'll get it. Right? But Paul gets it, and he understands there's a caution against just telling people what they have to do. It may not produce in them the Christian character that they need. This is not to say something's wrong with rules. It's to say something's wrong with us doing what's right simply because we're told to do it. We want to do it out of... You know, he says, servant, Jesus says servants don't know what their master's doing. They don't know what their master's up to. He says, but no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. Because he wants us to know his heart. He wants us, us to understand the purpose the reasons so that we could be truly loving people, not just Christian behaving, if that makes sense. Um, There's something really deep here in this, in this little phrase. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He gets something in his old age. It turns out when you get older, you actually know more stuff. Surprisingly, I've discovered this slowly over time. Yes. So, is it loving? That's going to be the question. This is going to be the idea that will guide Philemon and what to do with Onesimus. It's going to be this concept of loving God, loving others out of our out of our the depth of our hearts. So, verse ten. Here's the appeal. Here's the cry. Here's the call. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So, this is confirmation that Onesimus heard the gospel from Paul and got saved while Paul was in prison. He calls him his child. He says he's Onesimus' father. He's speaking spiritually here. He's speaking of a spiritual father, spiritual child here. Um, This is to say he not only led him to Christ, but I think he actually discipled him beyond just being led to Christ. He told him the gospel, but then he helped him grow and learn to follow Jesus more and more. It seems like Paul would do this on a regular basis. He'd lead people to Christ. He'd disciple them in Christ. Then he would go and he would do it somewhere else. That was like his church planting. It wasn't just evangelism, move on, move on. It was actually like planting churches. And he did this even when he was in prison. Um, In Acts 28, verse 30 and 31, we read about this. When Paul was in prison in Rome, it says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it's funny how he's in chains, but the gospel's unhindered. And his preaching's unhindered and his ministry continued. So, say you're Philemon. This guy stole your stuff, ran away, and cost you a lot of money. And here he is, he shows up, he's back, and I think your first thought might be, maybe, possibly. And then you read it, Paul calls him, my child, whose father I became. And you're looking at him and you're like, and he's a Christian now. We have a new relationship standard, don't we? And that's what this is going to talk about. He can't help but see Onesimus in a new light. In a brand new light. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. He, he can't help but love Onesimus in a new way, in a new relational way. Verse 11, he says this. It's really interesting. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Interesting, the word Onesimus means 
useful. And so it's like a wordplay. Paul's clever. He's a clever guy. And, and the Holy Spirit inspired him, of course, to write these, these texts, but I think he used his own thinking in the writing of it as well. And here in verse 11, he's like, formerly he was useless. He, the Onesimus previously that you knew, he was without use to you, but now he's useful to you and to me. I think it's like useful how? I mean, before he was working for me, he was doing all this stuff for me. That was useful, but not spiritually and not eternally only in these temporary things that will just fade. So now there's this eternal value in the things that Onesimus can do for the Lord. Um, so everything is seen from this like proper perspective. If, if you read the New Testament, we get this over and over again from Jesus, from the apostles. We get this like eternal perspective on things and it changes our lives. He's saying that he's doing this with Onesimus. He's like, yeah, now, now, now his life has eternal value. Um, verse 12, I'm sending him back to you sending my very heart. Oh man, how do you get mad at this guy now? He's my heart? Paul's like, he's my heart? Remember this, Paul didn't turn him in, probably because of the Old Testament law, I'd imagine, teaching him moral principles that he applied. Even though he was under Roman law, he did not yield to the Roman law in regards to slavery. He, he you know, kept secret Onesimus' situation. Um, but Paul loves this guy. And this should impact Philemon, and it should impact us. Do you see the connection yet? When you see another believer, and God sends them to you, it's like God's saying, look, here's my heart. Here's one whom I so loved, I gave my only begotten son. Can you love them too? Here's one who I died for. Can you embrace them? Maybe formerly they stole from you. Maybe formerly they ripped you off. Maybe they did you wrong. Maybe they mistreated you, but I want you to go back to them and receive them for me. And that's what this letter does. This letter takes, Paul takes himself and he puts himself in the place of Onesimus. And he's like saying, Philemon, if, you'll rec- if you receive me, I want you to receive him. And I imagine he had a conversation a lot like this with Onesimus ahead of time. Because this was going to be a two-way issue, wasn't it? I can't even imagine. I wonder what the letter to Onesimus would look like if he hadn't been in person with him and he had to have it written down. I wonder. This should impact us. It should impact the way we view each other, the way we handle Christians, the way we handle those who wound us, who hurt us. I mean, if these two people can be reconciled, then yeah, we should at least be on our side of the story. I'm reconciled. Maybe you're not, but I will be, you know. Verse 13, he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So he's saying, I, 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 didn't want, I could have just assumed, oh yeah, Philemon, he loves me, he loves the Lord, he's going to be fine with this, just stay with me, Onesimus. But he's like, no, no, we don't have his consent, it's just not quite right. You know? It's a complex, weird situation of life, but it's not quite right. It's not quite right. So he sends him back. So the goal here is um, goodness of your own accord. That's the goal for, for Onesimus. Uh, for Philemon, excuse me. And that's again why he says, I'm Paul the aged. I'm not just telling you what to do. I want you to do goodness of your own accord, something good. This is the Christian call to holiness. Hebrews 10, 16, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God wants us to obey him from the inside out. And this is deeply profound. I feel like this is a lot of the Christian journey right here of discipleship. Obedience from the inside out, self-sacrificial love towards other people, 
because of your love and appreciation for Christ. I feel like this is our story, you know. This is one of the reasons why giving can't be by compulsion in the text of Scripture. It says, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, so that there can't be these... A friend of mine who went to a church where they would pass the plate two or three times every week, and um, he didn't go back, but he went to this church and they passed the plate and you, the pastor told everybody to hold up their money and wave it in the air. Like, I'd already be like, on my way out, you know? <laughs> He's like, hold up your money and wave it in the air. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, how do you not see how weird this is? They're waving it in the air, and then this lady, she's, he, he was like, okay, he's got his money. He's not going to wave it, he's, but he's going to give. He was visiting, and he felt, you know, wanted to give. So he gives, and the bucket passes. And then a little while later, the pastor's warming up again and getting going, and he sends the plate around again. And he realizes why the lady next to him only gave a dollar, because she knew it was coming back. Because this time, the pastor's like, give more than last time. And apparently she knew this, because now she's holding up two dollars. But she looks at him and he's not holding up any money. So she reaches over and she hands him a dollar. Because you're all supposed to participate. Because this is weird. <laughs> this is... Oh, man. Just stop. You know, like, just, just stop. Like, I don't know how to fix things like that. I mean, God, give them wisdom and get them right. But at any rate, giving can't be by compulsion because the act of giving money or financially supporting a ministry isn't actually as important as the inner act of the voluntariness of it. Is that a word? Voluntariness? Voluntarosity of it. Yes. Um, money is the secondary issue. The heart is the primary issue. And this is the case throughout scripture is the heart is the, is the number one issue. And we say, like, God knows my heart. But we don't mean like secretly God knows my heart deep, deep down how I have some sort of motive of good. But rather, no, we're talking about pure hearts before the Lord. That's what he's going for. Um, so the heart is the issue to deal with. And this is going to then deal with, you know, Philemon is going to be faced with prejudices, class issues, may, I don't maybe race issues. It was less about race and more about class to the Romans, you know, when it came to these sorts of things. You're of a lesser class. Um, and he had to deal with all this stuff, and he's being called to love him the way he loves Paul, and he certainly looks up to Paul. And he's supposed to be looking at Onesimus like this. And I say, if you love Jesus, look at others like they're Jesus, you know, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And this should be our heart. So not by compulsion, but of his own accord. And then this is the message to us. I think, you know, when I read a text, I ask, you know, why does the Holy Spirit have this in here for us? It wasn't just written for them. It was written for us too. Well, I think that's the message. Obedience and love, not by compulsion, but of your own accord. That's what God's trying to call us to. Verse 15, he says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul, his, there's a father-child relationship, right, because of the salvation when he shared the gospel with them. But he calls him a brother in the Lord because in Christ we're all equals. But how much more to you that how much more is because, um, as he wrote in Colossians, letter written, delivered by the same guy, written in it on the same time, um, they're masters in your flesh. Colossians 3.22, obey your masters according to the flesh. And he says, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You had a relationship with him in the flesh, but now you have a brotherhood in the Lord. And that is gonna, that's got to tr- be the thing that trumps the rest of it. 
employee, employer, doesn't matter as much as brother and sister in Christ. Um, it's the right kind of nepotism. <laughs> so this, this is interesting, though. He says, perhaps this is why he was parted from you. Paul guesses at what God might have been doing when Onesimus ran away. And he just guesses at it. He doesn't mind, like, you know, maybe this is, this is what God had planned all along when he ran away from you. Even though technically that may have been a wrong thing. We don't know the circumstances. It may have been right. It may have been wrong. I don't know. This is interesting for a couple reasons. For one thing, Paul's not sure that that's why. He says, perhaps. Like, so he doesn't know for sure what God was doing, but he is willing to guess and say, I could see how this might be what God was doing. And that encourages me because then it gives me a little bit more permission to just guess sometimes. And you know, I look back at life and go, you know, maybe the Lord was doing this because that sure did fall in place really well, you know? I saw how that happened. Like, hey, he ran from you, but he ran to me and he met Christ through me and I'm sending it back to you. And Paul's like, you know, looks like providence to me, maybe, maybe, maybe. But he's not like firm. And some people, they kind of bug a little bit because they're so firm about everything that they know God is doing. And I'm a little bit like... I just stop talking because I don't want to be rude to them. I love them, but I just, I'm tired of them always telling me what they know God is doing all the time. When, when often they don't turn around a week later to see if they were right or not. But maybe it's okay to say maybe. And so I think there's like this balance here. Paul's not sure, but he doesn't mind wondering. And the reason is because God is actually sovereign. And because he knows something, Paul, Paul knows God is actually working in our lives to bring us to Christ to work good in our lives. So he knows that, so it's okay to kind of guess a little bit, but don't be too arrogant about those guesses, as even the apostle himself was not. I kind of like that. Um, This is interesting too, though. Uh, Sometimes people ask the question of why didn't God just abolish slavery? Like, why didn't he just say in the text of scripture, you know, slavery of any and every single possible kind is now gone and wrong and all slaves should immediately rebel. This would have resulted in a couple things. First off, slaves tried rebelling all the time. And it got many of them killed. It was actually one of the most dangerous things they could do. I was reading about ancient Roman slavery, and slaves, because it was so dangerous to actually rebel or even run away, like Onesimus did, what they would sometimes do is they would just work really slowly, and they would, their form of rebellion was to be really bad at their jobs so that it would bother and cause problems for their owners. Um, And this was like kind of how they would handle the rebellion thing. So, but one thing it would do is it would cause tons of bloodshed throughout, you know, how many gospel, how many cultures the gospels gone into where there was slavery and how many people would have constantly died and how the reputation of the gospel would have been bloodshed and rebellion everywhere it goes. So instead what the Bible does is it does the letter of Philemon. And it says, like, or Colossians, read Colossians, right? Don't be threatening, don't be abusing, don't be mistreating other people. And walk in obedience, walk humbly, do your services as unto the Lord. And those are the two sides of the coin. And as that comes into the culture, we realize we're not actually trying to change culture, we're trying to change people. And you see enough people become Christian and culture transforms. And so evangelism is the number one way the church changes culture. We see people saved, and those things are transformed. So I think that this was wise. 
I think the way scripture handled it was actually very wise and saved more lives and propagated the gospel further because of it. Um, Verse 17, he says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And this is so classic because this is exactly what the Lord does. He says, you know, Philemon, take Onesimus like he's me. This totally changes how he treats this guy now. How can I ever treat him poorly ever? You can't. If you're a Christian, you can't. But this is just what the Lord does to me. He says, Mike, I want you to receive Randy like it's Jesus. How can I ever look at you the same? Like if I really take this to heart, how do I ever look at you the same? And if if you've wronged me, what do I do? Verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Doesn't Jesus say the same thing to us? Oh, have they wronged you? Charge it to my account, and I see him on the cross, paying for what they did. And then he says, and by the way, you owe me yourself already. And Paul's speaking here of how he led him to Christ, right? He had, you have a debt to me, you know, in that. And so he's trying to like, but, but the beauty of it is how it relates to Jesus Christ. And that, that's the parallel. That's the parallel. If I want to get my heart in line with what God's saying, I think that's the stuff I need to be thinking about. Verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Um, so here's a couple things here. Um, he says, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Meaning Paul didn't, he didn't ask for things from people. This was not a normal thing. He's like, yep, I'm asking something from you. <laughs> and what I want you to do is I want you to do something for someone else in my name. And it's like the Lord does the same thing for us. We see the parallels between our relationship with Christ and others right here. Um, but there's a few other things. Paul had not forgotten the rule of prayer, even in his traveling plans. He's like, I'm trusting that through your prayers, I'll graciously be given to you. This isn't Christianese. He's really saying through your prayers. Be praying for me. Pray that I will be delivered. Um, But there's another thing here, and that is the terminological stuff. This phrase, confident of your obedience, I write to you, would be insulting to a lot of people today. Don't you think? I think a lot of people today would be very insulted by this. Confident of your obedience. Yet Paul is really gracious, but he's very honest as well. He's very straightforward in the things he says. Um, Paul meant it as a compliment, but I think our culture would take it as an insult. I'm confident of your obedience. <laughs> my obedience. <laughs> Throw the letter away. You know, I was with you until you said something that challenged my ego. Um, this is a problem for us. Um, sometimes, as a pastor, uh, and you guys, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, as well. But I, I find that when I'm trying to give people counsel, I feel like I'm supposed to weave my words so carefully that it sounds like I'm agreeing with them when I'm really telling them they're wrong. And I've gotten worse and worse at this over time because I realize that the harder I have to work to trick you into thinking I didn't give you counsel and that you thought of it on your own, the less the counsel sticks and the less impactful it is. And then it's a lot more impactful for me to kind of do what Paul does and be like, yeah, you know, yeah, no, I think you're really wrong there. And just let you sit with it. (laughs) And there's something about this. We don't wait till we're mad to tell people they're wrong. We, We wait till they need to hear it to tell them. You know, and we do it in a, in a gracious way, but in an honest way. And there's something healthy about that. If our pride will let people do it, because pride's like a balloon that's overinflated. 
You know what? The balloon's, if it's barely inflated, you could smack that thing everywhere you want. It doesn't pop. If it's overinflated, it just like touches the ceiling and poof, it's gone. And this is like us when we're full of pride. I'm just hypersensitive and I come into contact with the slightest little thing and I blow up and I can train others. But the thing is, I'm, when I, th- I think I'm training others to treat me with respect, the truth is I'm training others to never confront me and never correct me and never help me. So that when I do finally fall, pride comes before destruction. I'll look at them and be like, why didn't you tell me? And they're like, we tried, but every time you blew up all over us. And I've seen this in people's lives, like a pattern. Pride keeps people from telling me what's wrong with me. Then I fall and fail. And then I feel all alone and I'm mad at everyone because they didn't help. It's the cycle. But Paul is just straight up and he's as confident of your obedience. He's not worried about offending him in this. He thinks considers a compliment and I think probably Philemon did as well. <clears throat> Epaphras, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Interesting, Demas later on, it seems, abandons Paul. Um, Demas forsakes him, having loved the world, and the word agape is used, that he agape the world. It's really interesting. Um, Luke is with him here. Some say Luke was not a traveling companion of Paul's, but here we have not only in Acts where there's these we passages where he's like, we went here, we went there, but now we have in Philemon where Paul's like, Luke greets you, like, unless this is part of some crazy conspiracy, because they're like, 2,000 years from now, people will be coming through these texts looking for these little hints, you know, like, um, or Luke was just with him. So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the solution to the problems in our culture. Get right with Jesus and let Jesus get you right with others as he does the inner work transforming you from the inside out. We have one more piece of history about Onesimus and it comes from something, a document called the Apostolic Canons. It's from the 4th century, so it's quite a bit later, right? The 300s. And in the Apostolic Canons, we have a mention of a guy, Onesimus, who supposedly was a slave who was freed by his master and became a church leader after that. And so a church tradition in the apostolic canons that um, may be a real memory of what really happened after this letter came out. Um, and so it seems as though in maybe in the house church where Philemon had his home church, that Onesimus prior a slave had now become a leader in the church um, and freed from those situations. Pretty neat stuff. I want to close with this. This is John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15. One of the most profound passages of Jesus. He washes the disciples' feet, but what he says to them when he's washing their feet is really interesting. Um, John 13, 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? And the answer, of course, is no. They were thinking he just washed their feet. And he's drawing an illustration of his saving of their souls, him taking their dirt and putting it on himself and making them clean, him humbling himself, becoming their servant, that they might be washed, that they might be restored. <clears throat> then he goes on in verse 13, he says, in 13, he says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And some churches, they have habits of washing like washing each other's feet, like group foot washing, you know, ceremonies. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I actually don't think that's what the passage is implying. My impression is that Jesus, when he hints at this phrase, do you know what I've done to you? And then he says, this is what I've done as your Lord and teacher, what I've humbled myself to pay the price for your sins, to cleanse you, 
to humble and wash your feet, and now I want you to do this for others. Jesus calls us to, it's the old cliche, to walk in love, loving others as Christ has loved us, except it's not really understood by you until you know it's not a cliche, until you know it's like the deepest, most profound calling of your life, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbors as yourself. And in this letter, Paul writes to Philemon, positioning himself almost like he is Onesimus, you know, sort of saying, in my place, I want you to bless and love and accept and embrace Onesimus. And that is, I think, a picture of Jesus who is trying to get between us and our relationships with each other and say, in my place, I want you to bless and love and forgive and embrace that other person, uh, to love the body of Christ, your local fellowship, the faces you actually know, not the hypothetical people you wish <laughs> you wish might be around you or something like that. No. Powerful stuff. Um, beautiful letter. They need to make it into a movie. That'd be such a cool movie or miniseries or something like that. I really hope that they do that. Yeah. But do a good job with it. Don't try, don't, don't make it dumb. <laughs> yeah. And there's something else I want to mention. Um, and when he says to uh, Philemon, prepare a bed for me, you know, that I might be restored to you through your prayers. Here's the idea. He's writing him a letter all about how he'll treat Onesimus. And he's planning a trip to come and he'll be able to check up on him and see how's Onesimus doing. And this I see relates to Jesus too. Because Jesus is like, treat him, treat him like you treat me. And by the way, I'm on my way. <laughs> you know? And he's coming and there'll be this sort of accountability for how we treat one another um, in that. So in a sense, there's a security in that. Yeah. All right, well, let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for this incredible letter, um, this letter about restoration and family and Christian brotherhood and how that trumps other relations. Um, this letter about how Jesus steps between our relationships with each other and causes us to forgive and to take what he's done for us and to do it for others. We want to do this not by uh, compulsion, but willingly to love others as you've loved us. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us what that really means, that it's not cliche, and that if we think it's cliche, we're actually missing it. We pray that we would get this main thing right, to love you first and love others as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.